In this session, I would like to consider examining the idea of the inherent right or inherent privilege that comes from the maker of all things and of all that which has been made. And so I want to begin this section in Isaiah 45, verse 9 and 10. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? So the question comes down to, again, the inherent authority that God has over creation. And the reason I want to examine this is because one of the things that you are going to face when dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses is this idea that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And yes, I will go into that in Colossians uh, 1.15 and following in another teaching. But I believe it is a imperative that we begin here to lay the groundwork in examining Jesus with authority. And so how this conversation came about and, and why it comes to mind is in uh, one of my earlier sessions in going to Walmart. And uh, basically, I think I was there for an eye appointment uh, and having my Bible in my car, noticing again the, the Jehovah's Witnesses stands at both entrances. Uh, I felt compelled to uh, go speak with them and to really challenge them um, on the deity of Christ. And I know uh, the passage I was really focusing on was Hebrews chapter 1. Um, but upon my conversation with the second gentleman, um, who was, uh, I would say, just a little bit more abrasive, he, wa he was not... Um, he was not really into the conversation in the sense of wanting to simply discuss scripture. Uh, he wanted to end the conversation by basically throwing out as much um, proof text as he could as he could. And so one of the ideas that Jehovah's Witnesses are trained upon and that they will use against you is to essentially point out verses in which um, God is one subject. And then in the same sentence, you have a second subject being Jesus. So what they try and confuse you on is the fact that you've got God listed once and then Jesus listed separate from God. Again, two subjects in the sentence. And so to them, that's a, uh, you know, shut case. It's, it, to them, that's an obvious, um, they must be different. Uh, it does not... Um, it does not allow for harmonization of scripture. It does not even allow for the context of, in most cases where they reference these. But some of the places that they will reference is John 17, 3. And we'll, I'll probably do a full study on that one too. Um, there's another passage in Revelation. I believe it's chapter 2 where Jesus refers to my God. Uh, when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, quoting from um, Psalm 22. And so you have some of these passages. Well, in this conversation, um, this gentleman raises the question and brings up Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, if I remember correctly. 
And so I'm actually going to turn there because this whole passage, Philippians chapter 2, in this first half of it, is a is probably one of the best sections to not only give a full orbed view of the purpose of Christ coming and taking on humanity, right? Fully God, fully man is what we believe as Orthodox Christians, but um, it's a it's a wonderful passage that if you teach through it, you cannot miss what it's saying. But in his in this counter argument that he was trying to throw at me, he quotes this verse. So let me read it to you first. And this is uh, Philippians two verse nine, and it kind of went about in this manner. He goes, "Well, what about in Philippians chapter two, where it says God highly exalted him?" Right. And so I thought, well. How interesting that I had just been reading through this and I had been studying Philippians chapter 2 because I found it so fascinating. Um, So what I did was, of course, I turned to that passage. And so I would like to turn there now. So Philippians 2 verse 9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So there you have it. So what he's saying is, well, look, you know, God, one subject, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. But again, his his whole point was God highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus. So how do you have God and Jesus referenced in the same passage? Because, as they're going to try and say, well, how is Jesus God in this manner? And that's when I said, how fascinating. Well, if we actually look at the full section of text, which I did with him. Now, I began with him in verse 3 to point it out, but I would actually like to back up a little bit more. Um, Because in chapter 1, verse 29, you get kind of a a, a little bit of of an overview of what Paul is trying to get into. Uh, Essentially, in this point, he says in 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So, again, this idea of suffering. Why, why is Paul suffering, right? And why is it something that we have been granted to do? Right? So he goes into chapter 2 because he doesn't want to encourage, right? So chapter 2 begins with, Therefore, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Okay, keep that kind of in the back of your mind, this this concept of being in one unity of the same mind, right? In the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, so do nothing verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, okay? So now the focus becomes humility, right? As we are called to suffer for Christ's name, we will face a situation where we are to be humble and we are to keep this humility of mind, right? Who are we? If Christ has suffered, should we not also expect the same thing? You know, doesn't he say that just as the world hated him, it will hate us also because we are not of the world? 
Of course. So, Paul here in chapter 2 is teaching on humility, right? And this is something that I wanted to point out to this gentleman as I walked through the text. Because we're about to get the perfect example of humility. So let's continue. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So then we get into verses 5 through 11 again. This is the section that lays out kind of the full-orbed view of Christ. So verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So again, what are we talking about here? What is this attitude that we are to have? Right? Humility of mind. And what does that look like regarding others more important than yourselves and looking out for their interests, not just for our own? Right? So again, who is the perfect example of this? Well, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is where you got to stop first. Because in the Jehovah's Witness system, as I pointed out earlier, they believe Jesus is the first created being. Okay? They don't hold Jesus to the same level of God. You know, the, the name they use for God is Jehovah, right? And they separate um, Jehovah from Jesus, right? And so this is one of those passages where they're going to point it out and go, see, Jesus is separate from Jehovah, right? But we just learned in verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, right? So you got to ask, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So now, if this passage is teaching on humility, and we've already learned that there is an inherent right of the creator over creation that automatically places, as they would say, Jehovah above Jesus at a higher level. Jesus being created is automatically lower. So please explain to me how this passage is teaching humility if Jesus is not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped or literally held onto. Do you get the picture? So he did not hold onto the equality he had being in the form of God. That is the only way to understand this text and the only way that makes any sense is if Jesus is of the being of God, right? Because the Trinitarian view is not one being and three beings. No, it's one being of God and there's three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The being of God is that which makes God, God. And the persons are the identities that we recognize throughout Scripture. And yes, Trinity is not a word in the Bible, but it is a proper term to use in the understanding of what the Bible teaches and how it harmonizes. So again, this is a passage that is now bringing into question, first off, humility, right? How is Jesus being humble in this state by letting go 
by not holding on to, not grasping equality with God. Right? So, one that puts them on the defense, the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they can't really respond to this, can they? Because it makes no sense to say, well, the first created being is not holding equality with God. No, because if he was holding equality with God, that would be sin. That would be what Satan wanted to do. Elevate himself to the status of God. Right? Jesus is perfect. So we continue and let's see how his humility plays out. So verse 7, but emptied himself. Stop again. Who is the one doing this? It's Jesus. He has the power to empty himself in this state. And what this means is he's not holding on to this state of glory, right? He emptied himself of the privileges, essentially, of the rights of God, the worship, the honor, the status. And what does he do now? Empties himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. That's verse 7. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, right? He took on humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, as it says in John 1.14. Being found in appearance as a man, again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is where theologians would say um, you have the active and passive obedience of Christ. And we, we often overlook this. Um, you know, it's very easy for us to point out, yes, Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins. Okay, but the only way he could properly do that Right was to be the spotless lamb. Of course, that was a picture of him being the sinless one. So he had to live a life of perfect obedience under the law and then therefore being the perfect sacrifice, the one who willingly goes to the cross. Right, No man takes my life, but I freely give it. He does so, right? So his, his act of obedience was fulfilling the law and again, if you think that was something easy, you know, we point out and go, oh, the, the Ten Commandments, and we focus on the, the last six with our, um, with our, you know, actions between other people. No. What is the greatest commandment, right? Which is really a summation of the first four. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how have you done that every moment of your life? How has anyone done that every moment of their life? Right. And he did it every moment of his life. So he had the active obedience, right? And then his passive obedience is going to the cross and being the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is the obedience that it is talking about here. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So then you get to verse 9, right? For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So as I'm kind of walking through this with this gentleman, yes, I was a little bit faster than what I'm doing right now. Um, 
I'm trying to, to help equip you, but, uh, you know, some of the things that came to mind first off was, what does it mean that God highly exalted him, right? And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Well, I thought, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, I thought Jehovah had the highest name. In fact, if you really want to challenge this, right, go to Psalm 148. So let me flip through it real quick. Because I find this fascinating. This is something I, I kind of discovered as I was uh, furthering my reading and listening through the Psalms, which uh, you know I, I try and do at least once a year. And having listened through it recently, I came across this passage. And really the whole psalm is about the whole creation praising God, right? Praising the Lord. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating psalm and definitely a good one. Um, but you get essentially verses 7 through 12. I'll just read quickly. Praise the Lord from the earth. Sea monsters in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, right? Praise the Lord. That's the whole point. So then verse 13, catch this. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Whose name alone is exalted? The Lord, right? Again, that would be probably translated Jehovah in the New World Translation, which again, I would say is a mistranslation. Uh, in fact, if I wanted to check that. I think that would be fascinating to look up and even have them recite from the New World Translation. Um, but again, so Philippians 2 verse 9, right? For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So what name is above every name in Psalm 148? Jehovah. So is the name Jehovah bestowed upon Jesus? Well, actually he claims the name throughout the book of John, but that's a whole other study. So, yeah, he's got the name. And then we get to verse 10, and this is the one that I had really kind of drove home with this man. In verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, right, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord right? To the glory of God the Father. So the Father is actually identified as God. So now when you plug that back in, right, you can understand that just as commonly referenced through the New Testament, oftentimes, not every time, because there are actually a few times that God is referenced of Jesus directly, um, especially when you understand the Granville Sharp rule in Greek. Um, but that's a whole other study. Um, you get this passage, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and below and under the earth. Oh, well, 
this is where my mind goes. I think of too many things too quick. So what I was getting at was the Father is identified as God, right? So then you could even plug that back in if you really think about it. Who, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, speaking of the Father, did not regard equality with God, the Father, a thing to be grasped, that emptied himself, right? And verse 9, who is it that elevates him? For this reason also God, speaking of the Father, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. Right. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, right, to the glory of God the Father. So, and I, what I thought was, and having listened through Isaiah, yes, I do a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my Bible study really is in listening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those that uh, if I'm, really trying to dig into something I can sit down and read for a while but if I'm just trying to do um, as, uh, as as Paul Washer would say if I'm trying to study with my boots off right I'm not I'm not actively researching something I'm actually just trying to spend time with the Lord spend time in his word um, I do it best through listening and so I put aside Christian music I basically put on scripture right and yeah I'll, I'll put on sermons too uh, good Bible teaching verse by verse type sermons but uh, sometimes I even need to put that aside and just simply listen through his word and so uh, at this time I had been listening with this gentleman or when I was speaking with this gentleman I'd been just listening through Isaiah and uh, you know I highly recommend it uh, especially verse chapters 40 through 66 um, there's so much there but uh, having listened through it that that phrase caught my mind and it was something that i had not pre-planned with this guy but again this is how the holy spirit works when you really dig into his word when you really essentially allow it to just be written on your heart the spirit he can bring remembrance right so this is one of those points where in my conversation you know i just wanted to walk this guy through the text to show that he you know there was about humility but then having come to that passage about every knee will bow it struck me and I thought, I've heard this before. And so with this man, I said, yeah. And as we got to verse 10, as I'm speaking to him, I said, you know, in this passage, every knee will bow. I said, that's fascinating. Because if I recall correctly, God makes that claim in Isaiah chapter 45. And I said, so let me take you there. And so I flipped to it. All right. And as I flip there now... I got there, and it's really, <clears throat> I mean, this whole chapter, really, the, like I said, all 40 through 66 is amazing. Well, all of it is amazing, really. Um, but verse, <clears throat> you know, you really could be even back up. Verse, I, I, what I did was I took this man to uh, 23. Verse 23 is, is the literal verse, but. Let's put it into context, right? So, declare, verse 21, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. 
that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And so as I pointed this out to this man, I said, so who is it? God is declaring there, right? He is the only God. There is no other. Turn to me and be saved, right? And then he says that to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. I said, that sounds a lot like that passage in Philippians chapter 2 that we just read through. So then which one is it? Do we bow the knee to Jesus? Or in your case, because you separate God, the, you separate Jehovah essentially from Jesus, you declare Jesus to be created, not God, said, so who do you bow the knee to? And he didn't have an answer. Because he realized the text doesn't allow you to separate them. Right? Again, the proper Trinitarian view, one being of God, three co-equal and co-eternal persons. I can recognize that we bow the knee to Jesus and it is still in the glory of the Father, right? That's what that passage is speaking about. And so, having pointed this out, this man, again, had no answer. And I remember <laughs> basically saying, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a Bible study. You know, here's my address. Come to my house. We can continue this conversation. And uh, I guess he wasn't too fond of that, even though he did write down my address, but I did not see anybody show up for quite quite some time. So I don't know if they just blacklisted my house or what. But um, So I found that such a, pa a, a fascinating passage that you can walk through with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And again, even use, use it to plug in their own theology back into the context and say, does it hold up? Yes or no? And let it convict them. Let the Spirit work through this. But I didn't even want to stop there um, because, as I said, I, I often listen through the scriptures and um, later than with this gentleman, but something I'd like to even kind of dive into a little bit further on this. There's actually one more passage that talks about every knee will bow. And again, quoting from Isaiah 45. And so as I was listening through the book of Romans, um, I came across this passage in chapter 14. And I remember too, it's one of those that, um, you know, I'm not always fully attentive because yes, I am usually driving when I'm listening. So, you know, I have to have some focus on the road, absolutely. Um, but it's, you know, trying to keep my mind engaged in that. And I remember that, that phrase, every knee will bow being spoken in the recording. And I go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, so I, I pause it, I kind of backtrack to the beginning of the chapter, and I play it again, and now I'm really keen on listening through it. I'm like, all right, what, what is it saying here? And so I'm going to take you to chapter 14. <clears throat> and essentially, if uh, this chapter, you know, Romans is definitely heavy on theology, Paul spends, if I'm not mistaken, the first 11 chapters on laying this out, right? What the gospel is, why Christ 
died to be the propitiation for sins, chapter 3, you know, and it is by faith that we are saved in him. Chapter 4, as you go through, you've got Abraham and David having faith, which is a demonstration of that. 5, you know, Jesus is the second Adam, so on and so forth. Um, so you get all the way through, and then you get into how we are to live, right? What does that look like? And in chapter 14, it's essentially living with, uh, if you want to call it the weaker brother, right? How, especially in the context of Gentiles and having to face, um, or even Jews in this case, but just some of the convictions that they would have coming out of these different systems, right? And so in chapter 14, verse 1, just to give you the idea, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. For one person, verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only, right? Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge a servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand, right? So it keeps going. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, right? And that's key. What is written means it's coming from the Old Testament. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God, right? Now, first off, side note, yes, it's slightly different than Isaiah 45, even though it is quoting from it. Um, keep in mind that our texts of today, you know, the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew, uh, but if I'm not mistaken, much of that Hebrew is actually beyond um, first century. And so oftentimes in the New Testament, when the apostles were writing, they were not referencing the Hebrew text. They were actually referencing the Greek texts, okay? Because it would have been more common for them to get these anyways. But uh, again, they're, they're speaking to Jews and Gentile lands. These letters were meant to go into these Gentile lands and to convert Gentiles, right? So, what would be more common? The common Greek, literally Koine Greek, or would it be Hebrew? Well, it'd be more effective if you were using the, the Koine Greek. So that is why, if you ever notice and kind of wonder, well, why, why are these you know, Old Testament quotes slightly different? That's why. Because the Old Testament quotes that you find in the New Testament are actually translated from the Greek Septuagint. Um, so, yeah, they can have um, 
oh, I forget the actual technical term, but essentially you've got a range of what certain words can mean. So the, the translation might differ slightly, but that does not change the meaning. Because here, what is the point? Who is speaking? As I lived, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. But there's that phrase again, right? Every knee shall bow. And even in the, the New World Translation, it would say, as I live, says Jehovah, every knee shall bow to me. So as you can, again, point out in Philippians 2, verse 10, you've got all creation, that's why it's in heaven, on earth, and below, bowing the knee to who? Jesus. Right? And the name above every name is bestowed upon him. Right? Now, something to remember before I want to point something out, else out. Keep in mind that Jesus right, kept his humanity. So he is fully God and fully man. He is not a mix in the sense of like a percentage of man and a percentage of God. Um, he is, right, two natures fully God and fully man. So one of the side things or one of the things that you always have to keep in mind when dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses is the fact that their translation, the New World Translation, which, um, you know, you can easily access from jw.org. In fact, um, you know, if you ever want to really dig into it, and this is something I often do, is look at what the New World Translation says um, because, A, I'm convinced um, that with a lot of my conversations, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't actually read their Bible. In fact, the man that I spent many hours with, um, again, who was an elder who had literally the keys to the Kingdom Hall, so he had to be of importance, he just was frustrated in some of our conversations because I would point this out and ask him literally like, well, have you read this? Have you like, why have you not read these things? And it was, um, and I'll get into another passage, especially on the, the, the firstborn passage in that where, you know, when I asked him that or pointed out the, the, the truth in that section in Colossians one, that he just, was so frustrated because he goes, well, I, I can't understand it, right? So they don't actually read the text. So sometimes you can be even, I guess, more equipped if you know what the New World Translation says and even point out how it mistranslate, mistranslates. So on jw.org, you've got online publications and then you can get to uh, online Bibles. Now they will have certain versions. They've got like the... The King James, because remember, um, before the late 60s, I think, is when their first New World Translation came out. Um, before then, they they used the King James. In fact, I think a lot of people probably used the King James in the, before the 1960s, right? Um, and so they have that, and then it skips to, um, on their online publications, to I think it's like the, the 1984 version, if I'm not mistaken. And then you've got the 2013 version. 
So most Jehovah's Witnesses today will actually be carrying the 2013 edition or the 2013 study edition. Um, but they're trained in knowing essentially their proof texts, but not so much in walking through the passage. In fact, one of the things I found fascinating in learning kind of their, I guess, week to week and uh, how their, uh, their gatherings, I guess, worked was there's, there's actually not like a pastor over the congregation. In fact, you know, they're, they're trying to be efficient. So they usually have um, upwards to three different, con- or at least the one here in my hometown, they had three different congregations that would gather at different times. Um, and generally on Sunday, and then I'm not sure how the week worked out, but this gentleman often asked or talked about gathering on Thursdays. So they would gather Thursday evenings, but in, in, in both cases, right, they would actually have like one of the elders just use a watchtower publication and kind of teach through it. And if you've ever looked through them, they're literally like a question and answer type booklet. Um, so even in the the time that most Jehovah's Witnesses would say that they spend in study, they're not actually just simply reading through the text. They're not studying the text. They're taking Watchtower publications and they're just following along in those, right? And when you have questions that are kind of pointed, you're expected to have a specific answer. Uh, and even in the booklet, What Does the Bible Teach?, which was kind of my um, uh, my little key in getting in, if you want to say, uh, to have these conversations and to, to really dive into the scriptures, um, that, you know, that too has literally little questions and answers. So I say all that because I wanted, I wanted to point out something that you're going to face here. And, uh, having studied this in Romans chapter 14, just being fascinated about the every knee will bow. Um, you know, I, I looked it up. I went to JW.org and I looked it up and I found it interesting because again, it's literally a mistranslation designed to uphold the watchtower theology, right? That is passed down to all Jehovah's Witnesses. So as I pull it up, give me a second here. Um, Again, the English is much easier to manipulate than the the Greek. So actually I've got the... uh, I'll get into this next, but I've actually got the kingdom in a linear up. So that's their Greek translation, but I wanted to, to show you the English first. Um, so let me pull it up. The New World's Translation. Romans. Sorry, give me a second. 14. So again, just to give you kind of an idea, right? So it's it's close. Welcome the man having weakness in his faith, but do not pass judgment on differing opinions, right? One man has faith to eat everything, but the man who is weak eats only vegetables. Uh, again, in verse 3, For God has welcomed him. Who are you to judge the servant another? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. Catch this. For Jehovah can make him stand. Okay? So then you have, if you remember, in the... In the translation I use, a new world translation. You've got God 
listed, right? God, multiple times. Uh, for because of this, you also pay tax for rulers or servants. Nope, oh, sorry, I'm looking at chapter 13, of course. Um, chapter 14, who are you to judge a servant another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, so they are translating Lord, Kyrios, or the, the term Kyrios, right? But they're translated Jehovah. Now, to be technical, again, oftentimes in the Greek Septuagint, whenever it had, as we would use, Lord, all caps, um, that they would translate Jehovah is the Greek term Kyrios. But why are they using Jehovah, right? They don't say just Lord. In fact, they do at some points. But because, again, they're trying to just twist it just enough to uphold this idea that Jehovah and Jesus are separate, are completely different, right? Is this passage speaking about Jehovah or Jesus? Well, let's find out. So in the New World Translation, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it to Jehovah. Again, this is a New World Translation I'm reading. Also the one who eats, eats to Jehovah. For he gives thanks to God. And the one who does not eat, does not eat to Jehovah, and yet gives thanks to God. Not one of us, in fact, lives with regard to himself only, and no one dies with regard to himself only. For if we live, we live to Jehovah. And if we die, we die to Jehovah. So both if we live and if we die, we belong to Jehovah. Now again, it's kind of hard to twist it. They, and I would like to know what they would <laughs> say for this in verse 9. They say, for to this end, Christ died and came to life again so that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you also look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, again, there's that section that I wanted to point out, verse 11, As surely as I live, says Jehovah, to me every knee will bend, and every tongue will make open acknowledgement to God. So, they twist it just enough, right? And it re doesn't really seem like much. But, like I said, they're trying to separate Jehovah and Jesus. In verse 9, again, you have that for this to this end, right? So if we live or we die, we all die to the Lord. That's what it says in the New American Standard. For to this end, Christ died lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living, right? So, which one is it? Who is the Lord? Who is this master? Who is Kyrios? And you can even take them to their own Greek interlinear, right? And point this out to them. And show them how the Watchtower purposely twists this. Because again, it's a lot harder to twist the Greek than it is to twist the English. So let me flip back. And go back to the online Bible and pull up as under their other Bibles category. They have the Kingdom Interlinear Translation of the Greek Scriptures. And this is a phenomenal tool. Now, I'm not saying, you know, they might challenge you on, well, what do you know about the Greek? Well, that's what's fascinating about having an interlinear. You can point out the English words right above the Greek words. 
And yes, they will actually, in certain cases, change the English words just a little bit in the interlinear, but it's really hard to do. And so, like in this example, if you just go to chapter 14 in Romans, point it out, where they translate Jehovah, right? Verse, three, and again, this is literal. Just keep in mind the Greek is not always in exact order. Um, you know, usually the subject, if I remember correctly, the subject at the beginning of the sentence often is the emphasis. Um, but and there's, you know, there's a whole lot of rules to it. I'm still very much a beginner in Greek myself, but uh, I find it fascinating to read through the interlinear and what the original texts would say. But this one, again, is a mistranslation. But going to verse 3, they've got, uh, let him be judging of, uh, the God for him received toward self. It's right at the end. And again, God is, is actually the Greek word here, theos. You who are the one judging another's house servant, like who are you? To the own Lord, he is standing or he is falling. And he will stand, but is powerful for the Lord to make him stand, right? The Lord is the one powerful to make him stand. So it doesn't say Jehovah, but what is this term, right, that they translate as Jehovah? It's curios, right? Lord. And so as you just look through it, every time you have to the Lord or Kiryu, there's forms of it, right? Because again, it can be, <coughs> or words change uh, the, the, usually how they, the word ends is what it's referencing to, right? Um, like I said, I'm still a beginning student. But you can tell, verse 8, if ever for we may be living to the Lord, we are living. If ever we may be dying to the Lord, we are dying. Right? This is Kiryu, Kiryu, again, the form of Kyrios. If ever and therefore we may be living, if ever we may be dying of the Lord, we are Kyrio. Into this for Christ died, and he lived in order that of the dead ones and of the living ones, he might be Lord. And it's a form of Kyrio. It's... Uh, I don't even want to attempt curiosu, curiosum. Oh, I'd have to look up how to pronounce that. But um, again, another form of curios. So it's quite clear that <laughs> this chapter is speaking of Jesus, who is our Lord. And then, of course, if you just want to simplify things, you can just back up to <laughs> Romans 13. You don't want to have to dive into the Greek, but I think, again, it's a fascinating tool to point out to them that their own interlinear upholds the fact that Jesus is Lord, right? But just turn to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. This is back to the New American Standard. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts, right? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, our Master, seated at the right hand of the Father. What does he declare in uh, Matthew 
right at the end, the Great Commission, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, right? It is in his authority that we go. So I ask you the question now. Let's get this personal. Do you bow the knee to Christ? Because it says all heaven, earth, and below will someday. And he has that authority. The scripture, when you pull it all together and you harmonize it, it's quite clear. Jesus is God, right? Yes, the Son, second person, but he is still God. He receives worship, and we all will bow the knee to him in glory of God the Father. So point this out and call them to turn and fall upon the mercy of Christ. That is their only hope. So this is, again, the power of the gospel.